You may open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. When the Lord Jesus Christ faced a severe temptation by the devil himself, he was very hungry after 40 days of fasting. And the devil showed him some stones and said, If you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. But God had led him there for spiritual purposes, and physical food was not at the top of his list. He answered and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Amen. Galatians chapter 4 may not be your favorite chapter in the Bible, but we're thankful for every word that's in it. Amen. And let's look at every word in it this day and ask the Lord to give us a blessing from it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And there are a number of God's words in this chapter. Do not let your mind wander, your body sleep. You shall give an account for how well you listen to this sermon. And these are the precious words of God that can feed your soul. This chapter, like any other chapter in the Bible, is to be understood by its context. Your Bible is divided into two halves. The first half is the Old Testament. For 4,000 years, God dealt with the patriarch fathers that were before Abraham and Moses. And for 1,500 years, He dealt with those under the law of Moses. And then we get to the New Testament. Though it may only be a quarter of your Bible, it is the precious things of your Bible. The Old Testament was our schoolmaster. It was our tutor and our governor to keep us restrained from wickedness as as a race of people. The Jews had the benefit of that law. It was to drive them to know that they needed a Savior that could do a whole lot more than the blood of animals that they shed daily on their altars. For the last 2,000 years since our Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm thankful that even the pagans of our nation... And the pagans of the rest of the world must date their checks the year 2006 of our Lord. Their dating is based on our religion. Whether they be Hindus or Muslims. We have in the book of Galatians, this sixth chapter book is written to churches that were in a province of what we would call Turkey across the Mediterranean Sea from Israel, where Paul had gone and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, that his death on the cross was what paid for our sins, and that even Gentiles had been saved by his everlasting love, purposed in Christ for them, and the evidence of it was their faith and good works. Teachers had come out of Jerusalem and crossed that sea after Paul, jealous of his success, among the Gentiles, and taught those Gentiles that it was that Christ wasn't enough by Himself. They needed to add to the work of Jesus Christ, circumcision of their males, and keeping the law of Moses in order to be saved. Paul has to write this epistle from a distance to try to reclaim these churches. They were being bewitched by these false teachers. This is the book of Galatians. Its theme is simple and pretty much singular, meaning it has one theme. Paul trying to reclaim these Christian Gentiles 
like you and me, from the influence of teachers out of Jerusalem. These Jews treated, these Jews treated the Gentiles like second-class citizens. And the Gentiles, knowing that their ancestors had never worshipped the true God, easily fell prey to that approach. They knew that the true worship of God had been kept up in Jerusalem for 1,500 years. They knew that they had no relationship to Jerusalem. And so when teachers would come out of Jerusalem, they had a tendency to believe them. And so these poor Gentiles are being hoodwinked, seduced, and bewitched by these false teachers out of Jerusalem. Paul writes this epistle to refute those heretical teachers and to reclaim these saints that he had taught, converted, and baptized. The chapter is divided easily into three sections. Verses 1 through 7, Paul compares a metaphor of a child heir and the adoption that is available through Jesus Christ and the great blessing of the Spirit of God. Verses 8 through 20 are his personal appeal to those Galatians to remember what he had taught them when he was there in person and how much they had appreciated it and how much they had loved him for preaching it. And then verses 21 through 31 is the Apostle Paul taking the story of Abraham's two sons and taking an allegory from them and making a comparison. And this comparison is going to show that the Gentiles in Galatia were the first-class citizens and the Jews in Jerusalem had been cast out. Amen. That the Gentiles were like Isaac and the Jews were like Ishmael. And so by these three approaches, the Apostle Paul uses the fourth chapter of Galatians to try to reclaim these Christians. Let's take, the, let's take the chapter apart, verse by verse. The Bible tells us that the Bible is to be preached by reading in the book of the law distinctly, giving the sense, and causing the people to understand the reading. Amen. Nehemiah 8.8 8. Preaching is not an art form to make you feel good. Preaching is not a noise to tickle your ears. Preaching is the explanation of God's Word. Amen. Because it's God's words that matter, not mine or any other man's. Amen. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. In the last part of chapter 3, the Apostle has said that the law of Moses was a schoolmaster. And he uses the word schoolmaster three times in verses 22 through 25. God gave the law of Moses with all of its nitpicking commandments in order to show man their sinfulness. The law of Moses was never given to get anyone saved. It was never given to justify a single man. There will be no one in heaven from keeping the law of Moses. The New Testament tells us why God gave the Old Testament. To let us know how bad we are. Those Ten Commandments are not for us to keep to earn our way to heaven. Those Ten Commandments are for us to try to keep knowing that we fail and that we deserve hell. That's what the Bible teaches. And all those commandments, and I had a young man come up to me this morning and say he had just finished the book of Leviticus. I gave him a pat on the back and some sympathy. Because the book of Leviticus is not pleasure reading. 
The book of Leviticus is all the difficult commandments that the Levites, the Levites and the priests had to keep for Old Testament worship. And all of it was to show that we needed a real Savior and that it wasn't the law of Moses. And so he called it a schoolmaster. This schoolmaster was to slap those little children into shape and teach them the rudimentary elements of education that they were sinners and they needed a Savior. That's already been given to us in the last part of chapter 3. And so we understand why God gave the law. He gave it to show man his sinfulness, not to show him how he can be saved and go to heaven. As we come to chapter 4, Paul takes off from that and uses another metaphor for our understanding. In this first verse, he is saying, If there is a child that is the beneficiary of his father's will, while that child is an infant or a child, the father doesn't transfer the estate. He treats that little guy like anyone else in the estate. There's no difference between that child heir and a child servant. They both have to go to school and learn their ABCs. This is exactly what Paul is saying. In chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul says, The heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. That authority hasn't been given to him yet, but when the inheritance is transferred to this child, then he will exercise the authority of Lord of all. He is legally in some respects, or by the purpose of the Father, the Lord of the estate already, because it is written so in the covenant. Verse 2, But he is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. You know, a wise father might hold back his child's inheritance until he's 30. I know there's one man in this congregation whose parents held back the estate until he was 40. Wisdom. Wisdom. You know, our generation would say, give it to me now. The reason children want it now is so they can go out and waste it on a car that they can wrap around a tree within the first month. Even at 30, you've just barely become a man. And so this second verse is saying a father that has a big estate and is going to transfer it to his child puts that child under tutors and governors. Tutors to teach him, governors to restrain him so that he can stay out of trouble and he can learn how to handle the estate when it's given to him. Oh, this is sweet. This is sweet. We have the Old Testament. When you're reading three quarters of your Bible... All of it, all it is is a tutor and a governor to keep you restrained from sinfulness and to teach you what you need and that it's coming. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, brethren. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse three. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now Paul is using we, speaking of himself, and other Jewish teachers, and any Jews in those assemblies, and those Gentiles as proselytes. He's using we, referring to us under the law. Even so we, when we were children, when God was still dealing with us, as a father deals with his child before he gives him the estate, 
when God was dealing with us before He gave us the promised blessings, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. What are the elements here? The word element in this case, this is the only place it's used in the Bible. Galatians chapter 4, it's used twice. Now, elements is used in 2 Peter chapter 3, referring to the atomic composition of our earth and the, and the elements of the heavens and the earth. But here the word elements is being used as elementary education. That's what the word means. When Paul writes this verse in, in Colossians chapter 2, he uses the word rudiments twice. And it's only used there in Colossians chapter 2. So Paul has some unique language, rudiments and elements. And both of them mean the rudimentary instruction, the elementary teaching of a child, which is the Old Testament. It's rudimentary. It's beggarly. It's carnal. It's weak. It's unprofitable. Because all it does is show us that we're sinners. It doesn't get us to where we want to be. It doesn't get us to the inheritance. The word elements here means elementary education. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. And that's all the Old Testament does, is put you under bondage. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, and if thou dost, thou shalt die. And you just read that over and over. There's pages, chapters, and whole books of that, and it leaves you in bondage. You know you're condemned. Remember, keep in mind first, Paul's writing to Gentiles in Galatia to save them from those that say they had to keep the law in order to be saved. Always keep that foremost in your mind, but then secondarily, let's realize that we live in the end of the world. The world is about to be wrapped up. God chose for you and for me to live in the end of the world. And we can see the progression of God's revelation. There was very little for 2,500 years. Those are the days of Adam, of Noah, and of Abraham. Then there was more revelation through the Old Testament given to Moses. But we have the full revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. We were once, those that were under the law were in bondage under the elements of the world. They were getting their rudimentary education that they were losers, sinners, condemned, and without hope in the world unless God sent a Savior for them. Even so we, just like that child under his father, so were the Jews under the law. Verse 4, But, oh, when you read the Bible, and it's following one course of thought, and it says, But, we have something to deliver us from that bondage. But, when the fullness of the time was come, the child is now old enough to receive his inheritance, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. The fullness of the time, He's still following that metaphor. The Father waits until the full time of turning 18, 30, 40, whatever you want to make it to be in your mind, it doesn't matter. When it gets to the fullness of time, the child is finally old enough to receive the estate. The Father gives it to him. In the fullness of time, And when the time had fully come, when God had fulfilled His purpose of 1,500 years of elementary education, He gave the Lord Jesus Christ, which was the promise all along. It was the promise all along because that's what we've been taught, that God had promised to Abraham well before Moses. In fact, 
How many years was it before Moses? 430 years. God had promised to Abraham a seed that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, including United States of America in 2006. We are blessed by the seed of Abraham, and it's not the Jews. We're blessed by the seed of Abraham, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ, which we learned in chapter 3. When the fullness of the time was come, and you know that fullness was not set by man. If you would have asked those Old Testament prophets, do you know how long they would have wanted the Old Testament? About three seconds. So that they could have got to the real thing, because they never obtained the promises. God chose 1,500 years. You say, why was it so long? All I can say is, because it seemed good in His sight. And do you know what I say? I'm thankful to have been born on this side of the 1,500 years. That I've heard about Jesus of Nazareth. That I know He died on the cross and said it is finished. And rose up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, having purged our sins by Himself. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. You know what it means when it says made of a woman. Here was a seed of Abraham. When I go to Matthew chapter 1 and I read Mary's genealogy, I start backing up from Mary through Matthew chapter 1. And when I come to the first verse, it says that Jesus was the son of Abraham. Made of a woman. To be the seed of Abraham that had been promised 2000 B.C., 430 years before Moses was given the law. Made of a woman, God came and dwelt on earth in the God-man of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was fully God and He was fully man. The mystery of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And He was made under the law. He was born a Jew in a Jewish nation and worshipped at the temple. From His first days, He was taken for His dedication to the temple according to the law. And He kept the law perfectly, brethren. That law, that when you look at it and you read its 971 commandments, you say, I can't do it. Jesus did it. Jesus did it all. And then the law said, the soul that sinneth, it must die. And so the law had us condemned, but Jesus went to the cross in our place. So not only did He live a perfect life of righteousness for us, He then died a perfect substitutionary death on our behalf and satisfied the law fully on both sides. He kept it all, and He died in its penalty against us because our sins were legally put to His charge, and God accepted Him as our substitute for our sins. And that's there in verse 4. Made of a woman, made under the law. And what was the purpose of this? Verse 5. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. That we would no longer be servants. Now, think back to Paul's metaphor. He's got a father with a little boy that's the heir, but the little boy right now looks like a servant. And those Jews for 1,500 years just looked like the servants of God. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made into the law, now do you know, do you want to know what kind of language is spoken now? Abba Father. Abba Father. The sons of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, you're the sons of God. 
by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and His death for us. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. We had to be bought back. The word redeem means to buy something back. And so we were redeemed. We weren't redeemed from the devil. We weren't redeemed, but from the Lord Himself. Because it was His law that had us condemned. But Jesus, living and keeping the law, and then dying and fulfilling the law, redeemed us from that law. Remember, chapter 3 and verse 13 put it this way. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, here's one of those commandments, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Capital punishment was prescribed for numerous offenses under the law of Moses, but a terrible capital punishment was to die on a cross, was to be hung. The ordinary way of killing in the Old Testament was stoning. And if I can take 30 seconds for it aside, it'd be a wonderful way to restore capital punishment in America. Instead of worrying about making it so humane, why in the world do we want to make it humane for someone that has killed another human? Why don't we make it very painful, like stoning? Stoning would take a while. There'd be a few bruises, a few, a little external bleeding, a little internal bleeding, before you finally got to depart this life. And your mangled body would make great viewing material for MTV. It would help our young people. But the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, and thus He was under even the curse of how He died. He fulfilled every curse and paid the penalty for it for us. Chapter 4 and verse 5, To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. That was the legal purchase price. For those of you that remember our five phases of salvation that the Lord has shown us to understand how salvation occurs, this is the legal phase because it's Christ's redemption, paying the price to deliver us from the hold that the law had on us. And what was that hold? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Jesus Christ died for us. Verse 6. Oh, brethren, we have a father. He has a little boy. And he's rich. There's no one in this world that can do anything like our Father in heaven. But, you know, all metaphors are inferior in that respect. But we have a father, and he's very rich, and he has a little boy. And he has that little boy under tutors and governors. I mean, he's not going to a private school. The private school's coming to him. And he's teaching that little boy to get him ready to take care of that estate so that he'll enjoy it and be ready to fulfill all that that estate requires. And when we come to verse 6, this is God the Father beginning to turn over the estate to us because he's finally got us to where we're ready for it. The Jews under the law. The Jews under the law were instructed in rudimentary education that they were sinners for 1,500 years until Jesus Christ. The Gentiles, they didn't even know God. We were worshiping stumps and stones, insects and the sun. We didn't have a clue about real religion. Have you ever read some of the ancient religions and the religions of Egypt and other nations? Brethren, our ancestors, you know, we were talking about Scotland earlier. You know, you can think about William Wallace, but that's only a few hundred years ago. You go back a little bit before that, and they're worshiping bugs. They're painting each other. They're running around naked. They're setting up stones. They were so pagan and ignorant. Our ancestors knew nothing of the true worship of God. 
But Jesus Christ was sent, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. And because ye are sons, notice he shifted from we to ye. Now he's talking to Gentiles in Turkey. Gentiles in Galatia. That's why it's called Galatians. It's written to the churches of Galatia, province of Rome. And because ye are sons, verse 6, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is the day. This is the day of our weaning. This is the day of our estate being given to us. When was this day? It was the day of the Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles. Everything changed with the Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles. And because ye are sons, because Jesus Christ came and died for Jews and Gentiles, purchasing their legal adoption. You know, when you adopt someone, you have to satisfy the legal requirements. And when God adopted us, He had to satisfy the legal requirements by buying us back from the claims of the law against us. And we were worse than felons. We were enemies of God. But Jesus Christ died to buy us back from God's own claims against us so that we could be sons. And then He begins giving us the inheritance. Now, Paul right here in Galatians 4 is not worried about Jonathan Crosby's or the Church of Greenville's five phases of salvation. So there isn't any great emphasis on regeneration right here. Because regeneration is not Paul's theme right here. He jumps to the giving of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is called in Ephesians chapter 1 the what of our inheritance? The earnest. It's the down payment. The Holy Spirit of God which had never been felt by Gentiles before, other than a few exceptions that God had chosen. They had never had the whole... Remember how Paul reasoned in chapter 3 at the beginning of the chapter? He He starts right off saying, Who hath bewitched you from the Gospel? Do you mean to tell me that you got started in the Spirit and now you're going to be perfected by the flesh? How did you get the Spirit? Did you get the Spirit by the hearing of the preaching of Jesus Christ or by the works of the law? Do you notice how Paul's emphasizing something that we underemphasize and we better not underemphasize it because without the Spirit of God, we are powerless. Right. We are powerless, brethren. We cannot live the victorious, joy-filled, peace-filled Christian lives without the power of God Himself in us through His Spirit. Yes. And so he jumps past regeneration. It's implied and understood by knowing the rest of the Bible. But he goes right to this gift of the Holy Spirit that we receive based upon faith and obedience. You know, we first get the Spirit when we're born again. But then as we obey, that ministry and blessing of the Spirit of God blossoms in our life and it speaks and confesses and witnesses to our own soul that we are indeed the children of God. That's what 1 John teaches us. And so Paul is saying here, when the time was fulfilled, when the 1,500 years had passed, and all you had done was do this, do that, do this, do that. And you went through the motions of a ritualistic religion. Now it was time when the Lord Jesus Christ came. And He paid the purchase price for those children that were in bondage under the law to be delivered and become the children of God. And He gives them the inheritance. You know, if you get an earnest deposit in the world, that's pretty good that you're going to go through with the contract. You know, when you buy a house, you're supposed to put 3% down as an earnest deposit. If you've bought a house for a couple hundred thousand dollars, and that's six grand, most people don't walk away from six grand, and so they follow through on the contract. Now, when the Lord gives an earnest deposit, it's the Holy Spirit of God, 
And the Bible says, He that has sent Jesus Christ for us shall not fail in giving us every other single spiritual blessing that He has designed for us. And it was purchased by Jesus Christ. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. These Gentiles in Galatia, and this is painful for me to say to you, these Gentile Christians in Galatia understood what the Spirit of God meant. That's why Paul could reason with them in the first part of chapter 3, Received ye the Spirit by the hearing of faith or by the works of the law? They knew what the Spirit was. Remember in the beginning, if you had the Spirit of God, you could speak in other languages fluently. You had the gift of tongues. The apostles could lay their hands on a man, and immediately he would speak in tongues. And I don't mean gibberish of Benny Hinn. I mean perfectly fluent Russian or some other language that was readily understood by those that could witness that this was a miracle of God. These people knew about the Spirit of God. And I fear that there are many in the churches of Jesus Christ and maybe some in this church that do not know what the Holy Spirit of God is. And so I say it's hard to say that to you, but it's true. Without the Spirit of God, we are nothing. I mean, let me tell you something. If you're not led by the Spirit of God, you're not a son of God. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. These people understood it because they had seen the external evidence I hope we understand the importance of the Spirit of God because we've known the internal evidence. And I hope that everyone else can see the external evidence, which is not speaking in tongues, but it's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance by the power of the Spirit of God. Because I'll tell you by nature, neither you nor I are full of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, or meekness. We are the opposite of those things except by the grace of the Spirit of God. And so here we have in this sixth verse, it's not regeneration. It's the blessing of the presence of the Spirit of Jesus Christ in these Gentile believers who had believed and been baptized, were sealed with the Holy Ghost, and had the assurance in their hearts that they were the sons of God. And Paul is explaining that Spirit that you have in you that testifies you're a son of God did not come by the law. It came by Jesus Christ who after he had died on the cross, went to heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and gave forth the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwelling in men is an incredible phenomenon. And it is a gift by God's grace to His children to know that He loves them and that they have an eternal inheritance and that they can relate to Him as a father. And it was given Not until Jesus rose up from the dead and ascended into heaven and then gave forth the gift of the Spirit of God. None of it came by the law. It came by Jesus Christ. Bondage. The law was bondage. The law was elementary. What's the gospel? It's the beautiful whole thing. It's the inheritance. It's having God with me. It's not having God in that little holy compartment of the tabernacle, that if I go near it, I'm going to get incinerated. It's God is my Father. Abba, Father. Father in two different languages. A dear, tender relationship between a son and a father. And God sent that Spirit to teach us that He's our Father. Father, have mercy upon us this day and teach me and all these people how blessed we are 
that the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, dwells in us by his spirit. And that is an earnest deposit of the eternal inheritance that is coming. That's the New Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's pretty good. If your heart's in the right place today. Verse 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. What do you want for your inheritance? Dad's car? Just, just think about what people think. You know. I want his gun collection. Oh, precious. I want his bowling balls. Oh, come on. Think higher. Think higher. Let's get out of the closet. Let's get away from the guns and the bowling balls. Let's get out of the garage where Daddy keeps his car. Can you think of something big that you'd like to inherit? How about inheriting God? Is that pretty big? God is yours? Look at that seventh verse. Wherefore, as an explanation for what I've just told you, Paul writes, and as an explanation for what Jesus Christ accomplished by His death, thou art no more a servant but a son. It's no more. Do this. Do that. Do this. 971 times in the law of Moses. It's, you're my son. I've bought you from that law. I kept all 971 for you. I know you can't keep them. So I sent my son to do it for you. And you're my son forever. I'll never lose you. I've given you an earnest of the eternal inheritance that's coming. And I've got heaven waiting. And you can't even imagine it in your narrow little mind. He says lovingly. Where does he say that lovingly? I think it's 1 Corinthians 2.9. But I hath not seen, nor hath ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And we inherit God. Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You understand all that now, don't you? Verses 1 through 7. Jesus Christ purchased for us our sonship with God. And any Jew coming across the Mediterranean Sea to teach those Gentiles that needed to go back under the law, from these seven verses, those Gentiles would say, No way! I don't want to be a servant again. I'm a son. What are you trying to tell me? Don't give me more of that do this, do that stuff. I'm a son of God. Oh, yes. God has a few little things for us to do. But they're done out of love for Daddy instead of condemnation. It's not bondage, it's privilege. Amen. Oh, Lord. I wish I could tell you about it. Verses 1 through 7. We come to verse 8. There is a break. Because his thoughts are going to be different now. How be it then, when ye knew not God... Ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. Notice he has shifted from we. See, the, gen- the Jews had the real religion of God. Now he's shifted to ye. He's talking about Gentiles. And when he says in the first few words, how be it then? How be it then is not connecting you back to verse 7. Don't go back. Go forward. Because it says, how be it then? When? See, He's telling you what he means by how be it then. How be it then when ye knew not God. Gentiles weren't under the law. Gentiles weren't like the Jews. Gentiles didn't, weren't smart enough to figure out even the Old Testament religion. 
They were worshiping stumps. Brother, remember we were talking last night about the man who cuts down a tree? He takes one-third of it. This is the Lord in Isaiah 44. He takes a tree, chainsaw, whips it down. In Isaiah 44, takes a third of it, cooks his food with it, takes another third of it, and warms his hands. The Bible actually says, Ah, I have seen the fire. Ah, radiant heat is pretty nice. It is. We all remember. You stand in front of a fireplace and feel the radiant. Ah, I have seen the fire. Oh, I got a leftover. I got some leftover wood here. I think I'll make a god and bow down to it and worship it. That's Isaiah 44. Right. <laughs> you think it's really stupid, don't you? That's what all of our ancestors did. Right. All of our ancestors carved themselves totem poles and little statues and worshipped them. And now are you proud of mommy and daddy? You know, when you read about things like that, you can almost believe in evolution. I've never seen a monkey do that. That's what verse 8 is teaching, not quite in those words. <laughs> verse 8, How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. These Christians in Galatia follow their religious experience. Now I know that some here in the second row today are hoping that this is the end of their religious travels in this world. But let's think about the Gentiles of Galatia. We've been through the same road, brother. Brother, we went through the same road. We have taken a circuitous route to the kingdom of heaven. They were pagans. Circuitous means big circles, you know. They were pagans. Then they were converted to Judaism. They had joined the synagogue. And that's where Paul met most of his converts, was in synagogues. Because God had regenerated them and they said, where's the, where's the true worship of God in this city? There's only one place. It was the synagogues. They would go there and learn about the monotheistic religion of the Jews, which was the true religion. Then Paul comes along and preaches the gospel to them and they're converted to Christianity. So that's their third religion. And here he's referring to the first one and he's about to refer to the second one. And there were Jewish teachers coming out of Jerusalem trying to take them back to number two from number three. And so he reminds them in verse eight, you know, when you were pagans, you kept a lot of do this and do that rules. You had service and you, you were keeping your service, not like the Jews were. At least the Jews were keeping their 971 to the God of heaven. You were keeping yours to no God at all. Verse nine, but now. After that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Why do you want to go back to elementary education when you were preached the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the inheritance? It's the promised seed. It's the promised international blessing through the seed of Abraham. Why do you want to go back and get that elementary education all over again. Verse 8 is saying, you're inferior to even the Jews. Verse 9 is saying, why do you want any type of service-oriented religion when you could have the sonship religion of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's stop, though, and look at that verse. It says, but now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God. The word rather means 
The second thing I'm saying is better than the first thing I said. The whole world says, do you know God? Do you know the Lord? Do you know Jesus? Do you know what's important in the Bible scheme of things? Does the Lord know you? Does Jesus Christ know you? Because the most horrifying words in the Bible are not, you didn't know me. The most horrifying words in the Bible are Matthew chapter 7. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That's the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ from Matthew 7.23. Because what counts in the scheme of salvation taught in the Bible is not what you know, it's what God knows. Does God know you? The Bible says, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. The Lord knoweth them that are His. He's known us from the beginning. He's known us for so long, it's called foreknowing us. He's predestinated us. He's known us from the beginning. Jesus Christ said, I know my sheep. I know my sheep. But ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. John chapter 10. That's the doctrine of the Bible. And so the Apostle Paul here, he chases little asides, little rabbit trails once in a while too. And he says, but now after that ye have known God. Do you think that Paul actually wrote that? But now after that ye have known God. Oh, that's not the best way to say it. Or rather, known of God. Do you think that's the way it happened? Or do you think God the Holy Spirit inspired all those words? There was no mistake at all. Because God the Holy Spirit wants us to know that God knowing us is more important than us knowing Him. Amen. I love the Bible. Do you, read it, do you read it that way? Paul, that was no slip. That's a Holy Spirit slip and it's by holy inspiration for us and our benefit. Amen. He writes the way that we can understand it and actually get excited about that verse. Don't you love the first half of that verse the way it's written? Notice how that the Apostle Paul is making a doctrinal play on the voice of a verb. You know, when it says, ye have known God, that's the active voice of a verb. You is the subject acting upon God. You're knowing Him. And Paul says, no, that's not the best grammatical construction to present the truth. The best grammatical construction is the passive voice. You are known. When you are known of God, God's the subject, and He's knowing you. That's how we read the Bible. That's how we read the Bible. Because Paul makes plays on the voice of a verb. We will make plays on the voice of a verb. And when Paul in chapter 3 would argue from a singular versus a plural, we're going to argue from a singular or a plural. But that's not what he's writing this for. He wasn't giving them a lesson in how to study the Bible. That was a little side benefit that he gave them and us. Paul says, How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? God has made you a son. Why do you want to become a servant again? God has given you the full inheritance. Why do you want to go back to school and be told, Do this, do that. The rudimentary elements, the elementary education getting you ready for the estate when God's already made you a son and given you the inheritance. He's already given you the Holy Spirit. Why do you want to be in bondage again? You're a son of God. Verse 10, Ye observe days and months and times and years. Now the question is, what kind of days and months and times and years is verse 10 talking about? It is not the days, months, times and years of pagan religion. It's the days, months, times and years of Jewish custom. It's the law of Moses, because that is the context of the book of Galatians, not pagan religion. Verse 8 is only there 
distinguishing these Gentiles from Jews because the Jews had the worship of the real God. The Gentiles hadn't even got that close in their past. Remember, the whole issue is Paul doesn't have one word to say in here about them going back to idolatry. The whole lesson, the book, the singular, it's one theme, and it's about the law. That's why it says down in verse 21, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law. The bondage he's talking about is not the bondage of pagan religion, but the bondage of Jewish legalism. That you have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. So the days, months, times, and years in verse 10 are not Christmas, Easter, Halloween, and Valentine's Day. They're the new moon, the Sabbath, the Jubilee, and the other feasts of the Jewish calendar. Verse 11, I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Is it possible for a minister to bestow labor in vain upon a people? Well, of course, because verse 11 says that he is afraid of that. Is that labor in vain that these Gentiles were saved and on their way to heaven and were about to lose that salvation? Is that the labor in vain? Or was it the ministerial labors to convert them to the understanding of Jesus Christ so they could have the freedom, the peace, the joy, the assurance that they were the sons of God and that salvation was purely by the work of Christ and not by their law-keeping works. A minister can fail in that way. And the failure can take place in two ways. The minister can be lazy and not do his job right. Where's the warning about that? 1 Timothy 4.16 Where Paul said, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. If a minister is lazy... His people are lost. Then they can be lazy. 1 Corinthians 15.2 says, If ye keep in memory what I have preached unto you, ye are saved by the gospel. The gospel which is able to save you if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you. If either you are lazy or the minister is lazy, God's grace in the gospel, the message, the news, the revelation can be wasted on you Because the minister doesn't get it conveyed and you don't receive it. But if you're doing your part and the minister's doing his part, it is a wonderful blessing. And it is a rare blessing in the earth where that connection is made. Because look at even Paul's churches are being led astray by false teachers. So there's got to be vigilance over the pulpit. It has to be (coughs) protected. Not for man's jealousy, but for God's jealousy and your jealousy. Paul was very jealous of his pulpits. He was jealous over the Corinthians with a godly jealousy because he was afraid false teachers would bring another Jesus and they would believe another Jesus other than the one he had taught them. I am afraid of you lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. From what I hear about those teachers coming and you believing what they've taught you, I'm afraid that all my labors to teach you about Jesus Christ have been in vain because if you go back To add circumcision and keeping the law, Jesus Christ means nothing. You can't have both. If you add anything to the work of Christ, you make Christ of none effect. He's reduced to nothing. That's what chapter 5 is going to teach us. Now look at his personal appeal. Brethren, I beseech you. Now he hasn't been calling them nice names like brethren. 
He's been calling them, O foolish Galatians, chapter 3 and verse 1. But now it's time to practice Proverbs 15 and verse 1 by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 15, verse 1 is a soft answer, turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. So Paul's going to try gentleness for a few verses here. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Simply put, in language that we don't use, I love you, will you love me? I'm united to you. I care about you. I am committed to you. Will you love, care, and be committed to me? These words can be found in the Old Testament if we compare Scripture with Scripture, where Jehoshaphat said these words to Ahab. Now, he said them foolishly, and he shouldn't have said them, but he said them. I am as ye are, meaning I'm one with you. I'm one with you, and I care about you. And Paul's saying, I'm one with you, and I care about you. Will you be one with me and care about me? There is no personal offense. The fact that you have listened to these false teachers, and it appears you've believed them, that hasn't offended me personally. It's only offended me ministerially because I'm trying to save you. Because, brethren, dear brethren, I beg you, let's restore our old relationship. Which, if you read the next three verses, you know that's what he's saying. Let's keep moving. Verse 13, Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. When I first made my way through the province of Galatia, and I met you, you know that I had an infirmity in my flesh. Now listen, Paul was persecuted all the time. How many times was he stoned? He was stoned, beaten, shipwrecked, troubles, robbers, perils, cold, fastings, thirstings. You know what Second Corinthians 11 describes him. We don't know exactly what he has under consideration here. You can't prove that it was any particular thing, but he says, you know that I had an infirmity in my flesh. He was persecuted greatly. His ministerial labors were exhausting, and he had a thorn in the flesh sent by God, as we all well know. Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. You know, in 2 Corinthians, we are told that the enemies of Paul in that church The enemies of Paul at Corinth said he is contemptible in his speech. He's base in his appearance. He's ridiculous looking. We don't know what his infirmity was. You know, I've told you it may have been he was stooped over his entire life and could never straighten himself up. We have such a case in the Bible, a messenger from Satan. But we don't know. You know, we can speculate that it was his eyesight. But that wouldn't cause anybody to despise you. That would cause pity. Verse 13, you know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. He's going back to the first time they met and when he preached to them. And my temptation which was in my flesh, ye despised not. It must have lent itself to men despising him like they did at Corinth. Nor rejected. You didn't reject me because I had this physical problem. But you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. See, he's appealing. Do you remember how we got together? He's made it all the way to chapter 4. He's been pretty hard. He's been pretty hard in chapter 1, pretty hard in chapter 3. He gets to chapter 4 and he tries a gentler approach for a few verses. Do you remember when we met? You thought I was an angel. You thought I was Christ Jesus. You loved what I had to preach to you. You loved my care for you. You know that I was traveling the whole world at that time to preach the gospel to people like you and you received me as an angel of God. 
He's going back saying, what was it then that caused you to, to love me and love my message so much? You've changed. I haven't changed. I am as ye are. Will you be like me? Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? That blessedness that you used to say to me about how blessed you were to have me come and preach to you, you used to say that, what's happened to it? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. The eyes are one of your dearest objects. And Paul says, you love me so much because of the gospel I preached to you, you would have plucked out your own eyeballs and given them to me. Verse 16, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? That shows the depravity of men and the pride of their hearts. A minister seeking to teach them only the truth and to help them in the way of righteousness has men ending up hating him because he corrects and rebukes them. Now Solomon tells us exactly what kind of a person that is. That is a scorner. That is the most wicked man that there is in the Bible. When someone out of love and affection and concern comes and tries to preach the truth to a person and they end up hating that man because he corrects them and rebukes them and teaches them that something else is true other than what they thought. And here's Paul. Why are we enemies? Am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? I taught you the truth the first time and now I'm writing this epistle to tell you the truth a second time. Why am I your enemy? Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? God, help us and save us from such a wicked spirit. May we have the noble spirit of the Bereans. They receive the word with all readiness of mind. They did not receive the word with questions. They did not receive the word attacking. They did not receive the word resisting. They received the word with all readiness of mind. Not a little bit of readiness, but all readiness. God raises up preachers and He sends them to teach And when those preachers are sent to you by the grace of God, hear what they have to say. Submit to what they have to say, unless it's obviously wrong in light of weighty scriptural considerations. They search the scriptures daily after they received it with a very ready mind. These men had received, I mean, these churches had received false teachers with too much of a ready mind and had turned away from Paul. Verse 17, these false teachers, they zealously affect you, but not well. The word affect here means to love or to pursue or to to like, to desire. They zealously are pursuing you. They have affectionate zeal for you, but not well. The passion, the concern, the interest that they're showing in you is not like the interest I had for you. Their interest for you is for false ends. It's not a good end. It's not well. Their goal is bad. Their goal is to get you to get circumcised so they can glory in your flesh. Chapter 5 is going to tell us that. They zealously affect you. They passionately pursue, desire, love, and care for you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. They would like to cut off your relationship with me and the other apostles in order for you to love and be devoted and care for them. These are false teachers. They want to raise up followers of themselves rather than of the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of the Gospel. Verse 18, But it is good to be zealously affected 
to have to have affectionate zeal for a good thing is very good. Let me I'm, I'm rewording it for you. Verse 18, but it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. This is a contrast to verse 17. The false teachers that are there in Galatia, they are passionately pursuing you and showing a great deal of love and care for you, but it's not good. They have a bad goal. Their goal is to get you converted to them and away from us so that you can then take care of them and love them. That's 17. But it is good to be affectionately zealous in a good thing always, not just when I'm with you. And so he's saying, do you remember the affectionate zeal we once had for each other in those earlier verses? Are you following me? I'm trying to explain the Word of God to you. Do you remember the affectionate zeal that we had for each other? The blessedness that you spoke of. When I was with you, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. But now you're treating me like an enemy. Is it because I've told you the truth? Those men that are showing you affection right now, they have a bad motive. I never had a bad motive. Affectionate zeal is a good thing if you can keep it up. Not when I'm just with you, but keep it up faithfully and consistently. I'm at a distance now, and you've lost your love for me. I go away, and you forget to love me. And and you're falling prey to these other men that are coming in with false motives. That's what verses 17 and 18 are saying. The emphasis in verse 18 is on the word always. But it is good to be zealously affected always. See, they had been zealously affected for Paul. They had loved Paul. They thought he was an angel from God. They thought he was Christ Jesus. But then they had kind of let him slip away and were treating him like an enemy because these other teachers were coming in trying to encroach upon his ministerial labors for false motives. Verse 19, my little children. Now there's the tender apostle. My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. I'm like a mother that has to go through birth twice. I went through it once and the pains of labor to bring you forth to your initial conversion. And now you've gone back under the law, and here I am trying to form Christ in you again the second time. Now, forming Christ in them, was that their salvation or their conversion? Their conversion. You don't form Christ in someone twice or three times, but they may, be, they may need to be converted twice or three times or even more if they fall prey to false teachers. I desire to, verse 20, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. He has said that he fears them. He's afraid of them that his labor has been in vain. He's worried that he's going to have to form Christ in them again. And he says, I wish I could be there with you right now to look you in the face and to hear your true sentiments about the gospel of Jesus Christ. For I stand in doubt of you. The things I'm hearing about how you've received the false teachers and how you're turning away from me and counting me an enemy, and they're your friends. As I hear those things, it makes me doubt your conversion. That's the end of section 2. Section 3, quickly. Verse 21. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? Those false teachers that you Galatians have, and you Galatians that think you want to go back under the law of Moses, You want to go back into the law of Moses? Then let's read the law of Moses. You really like the law of Moses? Let me show you that I know a little bit about it. 
Let's see what the law of Moses really has to say to you people that want to go back under it. Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. It is written. He quotes their own scriptures. Abraham had two sons. I want to tell you about studying the Bible. Be careful. Remember its context. Abraham had eight sons. But God doesn't have to tell you everything in every passage because the context is supposed to limit your mind. Don't you go to some passage that is not dealing with your subject and pull words out of it. That's not how the Bible is to be used. If you're dealing with a subject, go to those passages that are dealing with that subject. Because if you deal with the subject of Abraham's sons, you're going to find out he had eight. One by Hagar, one by Sarah, and six by Keturah. Keturah was who he married after Sarah died. And he had six sons by her. But the point, and that's just a side trail. I just want you to be careful with the Word of God. When it says he had two sons, no Bible skeptic can raise this verse against us because the context tells us he's only doing with the two main sons that are recorded for us in the earlier chapters of Genesis. It is written, Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid. Hagar was a slave. Hagar was a servant. Hagar was an Egyptian. She was a concubine wife. She wasn't a real wife. Even though the Bible calls her a wife, she wasn't a wife. Because if you go to other places in the Bible, you'll find out she was a concubine. But a concubine was still called a wife because you still went to bed with her. And it was legal in the sight of God. But she didn't have the rights of a wife because her children were not going to get the inheritance. That was Hagar. That's the bondmaid. The other was by a free woman. That was Sarah, his half-sister. He'd been married to her for a long time. She was his full right wife with all rights. Two sons. One by the slave woman, Hagar, who was a bondmaid. The other by Sarah, his true wife. Full wife with all the rights. Verse 23. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Hagar had a child only by fleshly efforts. God's promise wasn't involved. The power of God's Spirit wasn't involved. It was purely the work of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar because Sarah got frustrated with God's promise and so she thought that Hagar could help Abraham and her self out by having a child in her behalf. Just a work of the flesh. Paul's reminding these Galatians where Ishmael came from. He was just a work of the flesh and not a real son of Abraham in the meaningful way that the other one was because the other son, Isaac, was by promise. God had promised Sarah would have a son. God performed that promise by His miraculous power, by the Spirit of God, according to His own ability and not man's. Verse 24, which things are an allegory? You Galatians that are being tempted to go back under the law, the story of Hagar and Sarah, the story of their sons, Ishmael and Isaac, are an allegory. They have a spiritual lesson for us. For these are the two covenants. The covenant of promise made with Abraham is represented by Isaac. The covenant of law works of Moses is represented by Ishmael. And let me tell you, this verse right here is weighty because Paul is giving the metaphor away by explaining it. These two sons and their mothers are the two covenants. 
The everlasting covenant of grace given to Abraham by promise and the covenant of works given to Moses by the law. These two women represent those two covenants. The one from the Mount Sinai. You know what happened on Mount Sinai? That's where God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. The one woman and the one son represents Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage. It's that do this, do that religion, which is Agar. Hagar, in the stories of Genesis 16 and 21, Hagar and her son Ishmael are to be compared to Mount Sinai and the giving of the law to the Israelites through Moses. This is weighty. You would never figure this one out without God blessing you by the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write us this. For this, verse 25, For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. Wow! Paul, by the Holy Spirit, says, you know the story. You know the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Throw them out. We haven't even got to those words yet, but they all knew that story. He said, I want to tell you something. They're an allegory. They teach us a spiritual lesson. That woman, Hagar, and her son, Ishmael, are to be compared to Mount Sinai and the giving of the law to Moses, which has all the people that keep that law in bondage. They are not sons. They are servants. And Jerusalem that now is, let me see, Paul was talking then, not today. Paul was talking about the Jerusalem in his day that had God's priesthood in God's temple with God's word offering God's sacrifices. And he said, Hagar and Ishmael are to be compared to them because they are in bondage with everybody else in Jerusalem. What powerful language. He was pretty nice for the middle of this chapter. And you know what some false teacher sitting in there would know with this kind of truth being laid in the congregation? Wow! This is powerful theology taught by an allegory by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 25, again, this Agar, Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, is why does it have an H? Because when Hebrew is, comes into Greek and then into English, you drop certain letters. That's why. What's Elijah in the New Testament? Elias. You drop a few letters. What's Joshua in the New Testament? Jesus. Thank you. Hagar. This is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, where God got, gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and answered to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. All those people in Jerusalem that are keeping the temple rites and keeping the law of Moses are to be compared to Hagar and Ishmael because they're in bondage just like the bondwoman was a slave and a concubine to Abraham. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. The heavenly Jerusalem, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Mount Zion that we have come unto, that Hebrews 12 describes, is the mother of us all, all believers. Jews and Gentiles. She's the mother of us all. We're in that city. We're free. We're the sons of God. We are not servants like Hagar, Ishmael, and all those that are still worshiping in Jerusalem. Now, brethren, this is wonderful theology. Paul was putting down the Jerusalem in his day. The Jerusalem in our day isn't even a third cousin to the Jerusalem of Paul's day. They don't have a temple. They don't have a Levitical priesthood. They ain't got nothing. And yet there are people that want to take Christians today and put them back into the law of Moses that hasn't been observed for 2,000 years. And we've, got a, we've got some brethren here that were put under that law 
by the worldwide, Herbert W. Armstrong's worldwide church of God. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. We are free. We are not servants. We are not slaves. We are sons. And it's by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the freedom is spiritual. And it's complete. And we have an inheritance. And we shall inherit God. This is the truth of the gospel. You had Isaiah 54 read to you this morning. And here it is, verse 1. For it is written, and Paul pulls another prophecy from Isaiah, and they can accuse us of replacement theology. They can accuse us of Augustinian allegorization. But we have the influence of the Spirit of God through Paul telling us that we can take Isaiah 54 and apply it to Gentiles being the children of God. That passage that David read to you, it said that tent is going to bust out on all sides, therefore you better get cords and stakes and expand it because the Gentiles are going to be brought into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and fulfill the promises made to Abraham and his seed. And Paul tells us that right here. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. The Gentiles had no relationship with God, but through Jesus Christ they were brought in, and they that were so few became so many by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Now we, brethren, verse 28, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. Chapter 3. Paul taught that believers were the seed of Abraham. Now he gets even more precise. Believers are as Isaac, the children of promise. If a man can believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of God and died on the cross to save his elect from their sins, that is evidence that he is in line with Isaac and is a seed and son of promise, a true son of God. The Jews couldn't do that. They wanted to add circumcision to the law, and it showed them otherwise. Verse 29, But as then, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. How old was Ishmael when Isaac was born? Fourteen. He was fourteen years old. Abraham was 86 when he had Ishmael. Abraham was 100 when he had Isaac. Ishmael was 14 years old when Isaac was born. When Isaac was weaned, and we don't know exactly what age that was, except by inference that he was five. When he was declared to be the seed of Abraham, Ishmael would have been 19 years old, and Ishmael was making fun of that little guy. And Sarah saw Ishmael making fun of that little boy, and Sarah came to Abraham and said, That bondwoman and her son shall not be heir with my son. I am not going to put up with any of that competitive jealousy going on in this family, throw her out. And Abraham didn't want to throw her and his, her son out. Abraham didn't want to throw Ishmael out because Abraham loved Ishmael. Abraham wished that Ishmael was the promised seed because he'd had time to play ball and go hunting with Ishmael, and he had never done that with little Isaac. And God told Abraham, I, I know it's grievous in your sight, but get rid of them. I'll take care of that woman and her son, and I'll make a great nation of him as well, but he is not going to be heir with your son Isaac. And you know what? You know what the Apostle Paul's telling this, these, all these Galatians that are sitting there in their pew hearing this epistle read? Those Jewish teachers that you have in there that are like Hagar and they're like Ishmael that are picking on you and trying to make you feel like second-class citizens, they're just like Hagar and Ishmael. Just like, Hag- just like Ishmael picked on Isaac 
Now they're picking on you Gentiles. You don't need anything they have to offer because Jesus Christ has made you sons without them. Verse 30. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. The two don't go together. One's by promise. One's by law works. So then, brethren, as he concludes the chapter, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. You Galatians, remember? When, we, when you were converted and when you were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, we are connected only to Isaac, only to Sarah. Children of promise. Children by the miraculous work of the Spirit of God. Not by the flesh. Not by Hagar and Ishmael. So then, brethren, we, you Gentiles in Galatia, and me, the Apostle Paul, a Jew, we are the children of the bondwoman, are not the children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We compare to Sarah and Isaac because we are children of promise by the work of God. They are children of the bondwoman because they compare to Mount Sinai, Hagar, Ishmael, and bondage. And they're still in bondage, but you are free. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you love Jesus Christ today? Do you know He's the Son of God? Do you want to live your life to please Him and to seek Him? You are, as Isaac was, the child of promise. Amen.